You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Glad all of you are here today. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. You've heard of Christmas in July before. Let's do Christmas in Genesis today. So let's start at the very beginning. And your copy of God's Word, would you go with me, please, to the third chapter of, of Genesis? Let's begin there. Start at the beginning. It seems to be a very good place to start. Genesis chapter 3. In your copy of God's Word, it probably has the heading, The Fall, on top of the third chapter of Genesis. I hope you have your copy of God's Word with you today. You can share with someone who is seated next to you. Maybe go to your smart device. It's always on the screen behind me in front of you. Genesis chapter 3, begin in verse 1. should be easy for you to find. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, blame shifting already here by the third chapter, right? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, blame again, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, Trinitarian, Father, Son, Spirit, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, parenthetically stated here, in that broken state. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He, God, drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he played the cherubim, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Please keep your Bible open. These first Old Testament chapters are foundational in giving us an understanding of the character of God, of who God is, and they actually set the stage for everything else that's gonna happen in in the scriptures. Now, this passage may be very familiar to many of you this morning, but don't let the familiarity keep us today, keep you today from, from missing out on what God would say to us. What I want to do today as we begin a brand new series for Christmas is to look at this unique chapter that we might see Christmas, specifically that we might see Christ, Jesus, who is the center of Christmas. It's helpful to me to think about the Bible as, as a two-act play. So if you only come in for the second portion of the play, the second half of the play, you don't know who all the characters are. Uh, you don't know what's going on because you weren't there for the first act. But if you leave it at an intermission and you only see act one of the play, you have no idea how, how it ends. It takes the whole Bible to unwrap the whole gospel. When I was growing up, I, I loved reading books like the, the Hardy Boys Detectives and um, Encyclopedia Brown. Any book that gave a few foreshadowings and a few hints at the beginning that made a lot more sense at the end, I always loved reading books like that. Well, consider the Bible much like that, like, like, like a mystery novel, a detective book, uh, where in the early pages you start getting these hints, these suggestions, these foreshadowings, and then as you progress throughout the scripture, you understand what was involved in those earlier pages, or think of it as a, as a book with all the answers at the end. So that things that might intrigue us at the beginning pages or stir our questions in the beginning pages, at the beginning, we see those questions, but those questions are answered the deeper you get inside of the book. So let's consider four things together this morning from this great chapter of Genesis chapter three. Firstly, we rebelled. If you're taking notes today, you can write that down. You can own that. We can own that. We rebelled. If you've been through the new member class at Highland, you know I say this every single time, right? I do say this every single time. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been John and Jennifer. It would have been us. So let, before we start casting all these, these terrible glances back at Adam and Eve, all of us in this room today, can we just come to this point? We realized if it wasn't Adam and Eve that rebelled against God, it would have been you and I that rebelled against God. So let's just see what's happening here. God has created the world. He has made it for his glory and he made it to help us know him. So if you ask yourself, why is there a world? Why is there this planet? Why is there a universe? Well, the Bible says God made it to make his glory known to us in order that we might know God, that we might love God, that we might trust God and enter into a relationship with him. So when we come into the first portions of the book of Genesis, the first chapters, we see that God has lit up the darkness. He has filled up the emptiness and he has made all things beautiful all things enjoyable, all things perfect. And so here the serpent 
comes in, in, into the, the garden to, to tempt the ones that, that God has, has made. Uh, we see that God made Adam and Eve back in chapter two, uh, verse seven. It's God who made Adam from the dust of the earth. Then back in chapter two, verse 22, God takes a rib from the side of Adam and fashions that rib into a woman. And again, they were created by God. They communed with God. All was perfect. That's the context in which the, the serpent enters. Everything was good. Everything was perfect. And the, the, the serpent appears. Now this serpent is real, but he's not ordinary. Remember much at the front of the book that kind of seems sketchy to us is clarified later on as you go further back into the book. So by the time you get to the end of scripture, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, we meet this character again. For sake of time, you don't have to turn there, but look on the screen at Revelation chapter 12, verse nine. We understand now who that serpent was. A great dragon was thrown down, and here's the clue John gives us. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So that's who we're dealing with here in Genesis chapter three. We see this ancient serpent identified by John at the very end of the Bible as, as, as the devil, as Satan, the great accuser. And this is important for us to understand because as we see evil in our world today, as we see the workings of, of, of terrorism, as we see the outcroppings of, of violence and, and, and racism and, and hatred and murder, we're not dealing with some abstract principle of evil. We're dealing with a sinister, true, personal enemy who is represented here by, by the serpent. And the strategy of this creature, the precise objective of the evil one is to hinder and if possible, to prevent and even destroy the work of God's kingdom by all means possible. So God fashions his world and all this beauty and the totality of beauty and then slithering into the garden comes this serpent. The serpent comes to the woman and begins this dialogue. Hope your Bible's still open. Look at verse one of chapter three. The serpent says, I have a question for you. Did God actually say? And it's the first question of the Bible. And it poses the first dilemma in human history. Did God really say that? Did God really mean to say that? Or Eve, would you be open to reinterpreting what God said? You see, when God's word is open to human interpretation and human judgment, we put ourselves in a place where we now determine what's right and wrong instead of God saying what is right and wrong. So as soon as the serpent said, did God really say, Eve should have immediately been suspicious. I mean, she should have been suspicious she was talking to a snake, but even deeper than that, as soon as the enemy says, did God really say, we creep into this assumption that all of God's commands are to be questioned. And this is alive and well in the year 2023 today. We can't say today what's right and wrong. We're at a point in America today that everyone is determining for themselves what is right to them or what is wrong to them. Now, you can't say what's true today because we're so enlightened. We have progressed so much that we determine what is true ourselves. What is true for me may not be true for you. What's right for me may not be right for you. And God's absolute truth, you can write this down, God's absolute authority is brought into question and man's authority is lifted above God's. That's where we are. It's not just where we were in, in 2023, it's where we were in Genesis chapter three. Lifting our authority, 
lifting our determination of what is right and what is true above God's absolute authority. And we begin to question it all the way back to Genesis chapter three. And then the serpent's second slithery approach is in verse four, verse five, the end of verse four. You're not gonna die. The enemy tells Eve, you're not gonna die. God knows if you eat, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. You will be God. In other words, this is the way that the serpent comes to Eve and says, you can't trust him. You can't trust his goodness. You can't trust his character. Sin at its core is distrusting the character of God. Sin at its core is believing that God doesn't really care for us. God really doesn't have our best in in mind. He doesn't really want what's best for our lives. He doesn't really love us. Sin at its core is distrusting the character of God, namely the goodness of God. So the foundation of sin, this is gonna mess some of your theology up, but stay with me. The foundation of sin isn't Adam and Eve going over and taking a bite of the fruit. The foundation of sin is their heart saying, maybe God doesn't really love us. Maybe God doesn't really care for us. Maybe God really doesn't know what's best for us. And it's the core of all of our sin in this room. It's not just when we lie. It's not just when we grow jealous. It's not when we steal that we sin. It's when we begin to believe God doesn't even care for me. And he doesn't know what's best for me. So we give ourselves over to our own way. We give ourselves over to our own path. We give ourselves over to our own desires instead of his. It's distrusting God's character. Basically, we're putting ourselves in the place of God and we say, I can determine for myself what's best for me. When we don't trust and depend on God, that's sin. And the appeal, you may notice from the serpent, is to the woman's sight. Look at verse six. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. In other words, her eyes were bigger than her ears because God had already spoken. God had already, had already said what, what is true, what is right, uh, what, what, what is correct in his, in his garden, in the economy of, of obedience. He's already said, this is what is right. This is what is true. She heard that, but now her eyes see a temptation and it makes an appeal to her senses. It makes an appeal to her emotions it appealed to her desire for things to be the way she wanted them to be. Essentially, you can write this down, the lie of the serpent was far more appealing than the word of God. And so she ate. Because what she was hearing from the enemy for some reason sounded more appealing than what she was hearing from God. And Adam ate too. Eve gave some to her husband. You'll notice this in verse six. He was right there, passively standing next to Eve. I mean, Eve was tempted to do it, but Adam just chose to do it. On his own volition, he just chose to obey God's clear command. And the lie of the enemy in Genesis chapter three is the same lie you probably heard this weekend. You'll hear it again tomorrow morning if you don't even hear it this afternoon. And here's the lie over and over again that, that, that we hear from, 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 from Satan. I can make it possible for you to push beyond God's boundaries and there will be no consequences whatsoever for you. And so Eve listens to the serpent. Adam listens to Eve and no one listens to God. And thus we get 2023. 
Eve listens to the enemy. Adam just listens to his wife. And there's no one in this narrative at this point who's just listening to God. Life kind of makes sense when you put it that way. The questions in the garden essentially are, will you trust God's word? And will you trust God's character? And that test given to Adam and Eve in the garden is the same test you and I are realizing even right now. Those same two questions confront us even this morning. Those same two questions will confront us tomorrow morning. Will will I believe God at his word? Will I believe the character of God? Will I believe whatever I want to believe and thus choose however I want to live my life? Secondly, we rebelled and brought God's judgment. We rebelled, and then we brought on the judgment of God. You see, the serpent's promise about their eyes of being opened was only half true. It was only half right because their eyes were opened, not to being like God, which the serpent had promised back in verse five, right? You see that? No, now their eyes are open to the awareness of their own guilt. Now their eyes are open to the awareness of their own shame. Their eyes were opened, and verse seven, they knew that they were naked. I mean, what does that mean? Of course they knew they were naked. They also didn't just become naked when this happened. They were naked before, but sin, oh, listen to this, Highland, sin changes everything. They are now aware of their guilt. They are now aware of their shame. They had sinned by rejecting and disobeying the will of God by doing what he had told them not to do. And now what do Adam and Eve do? Look what it says in verse eight. They do what any child would do after taking a cookie. Any child would do after taking a cookie that he or she was told not to eat. They, they run and they hide. There's gotta be some closet somewhere I can eat this cookie. So someplace outside, at least until I finish eating this cookie. And once I, I, I eat the evidence, I can reappear and, and all will be well. But never, never does this happen where all is well after sin. Because when you lie in your bed at night, you think, I should not have done that. That was wrong. I lie in bed tonight before a God whom my small heart is open and before whom nothing is hidden from him. There are no secrets with God. So with sin now in the equation, all that perfection is gone. All that was good is is now gone by the rejection of God's clear instruction, by their own decision, by Adam and Eve's own choice, by choosing to do their own way, go their own way, into hiding they go, and I love this part of the story, sewing fig leaves together, making loincloths for themselves. It's a pathetic picture, isn't it? Can you cover up sin with, with a fig leaf? And that's not even the the, the issue here. It's not that they don't have clothes on. The fact of the matter is this is an attempt of a sin cover-up. And they're hiding in the trees. Do you know how many people in our country today are running around hiding in the trees of their own rebellion? Trying to cover up their own shame? Trying to cover it up with some measure of pretending like there is no God? or covering it with some measure of religiosity, or running from God, or, I see this more often now, defending their own sin. Beauty and perfection are now replaced with brokenness 
and isolation. Genesis chapter one, chapter two, all was good, all was perfect. Even God said, this is good, all was right. And now because the rebellion of mankind, if not Adam and Eve, it would have been us, there's now brokenness in the life of humanity and there's now isolation away from God and Adam and Eve are about to be banished. But before they are banished, God comes to seek them out. Judgment will come. Firstly, God judges the serpent with a curse. If your Bible's still open, verse 14. This is simple to see. You're cursed. You will eat dust. And this is really important, I think. God says you will do so all the days of your life, he says to the serpent, he says to the devil. He does not say forever because Satan has an expiration date. He does have an end. Lo, his doom is sure. To the woman, verse 16, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. It's a statement of the physical pain involved in bearing children that men, let's just go on record, we have no idea at all what that pain is like. But beyond just the pain of delivering a child, there's a greater pain still that's attached to this curse. It's bringing a child into a sinful world. It's watching a child grow up with all the violence around them. For some, it's watching that son or that daughter rebel against God. And even for some, the pain of the loss of that child. Why is the world this way? The world that you and I know this morning is not the world that God created, but it is the world in which man has rebelled. And we see the marks on it even this week. There's implication here actually for marriage as well in verse 16, I find this interesting. Eve, your relationship with your husband's gonna become a potential battleground. It's gonna become this arena for self-centeredness on the part of both the husband and the wife. And to Adam, verse 17, 18, and 19, God says to him, you should know that although I gave you the, the job of overlooking this garden or, or looking after this garden, you're about to end up as a part of this garden. That's basically what God is, is saying. You're gonna work the earth and sweat and then you'll end up in the earth. You came from dust and to dust you will return. Death is judgment for our sin. This is what happens when man pushes against God, when, when man wants to be God, when man wants to be in charge of his own life, death is the judgment for our sin. You know, the philosophers of the world today, they have no explanation whatsoever for death. Adam here was created in the perfection of God's plan and in rebellion, he pushes against God's plan and the rest just follows. Adam and Eve sin and billions die. Thirdly, but God in his mercy. This is where it gets so good. If I would have dismissed you after point number two, this would have been the most horrible Thanksgiving weekend of your life. <laughs> but God in his mercy, this is where the story starts revving up toward grace. In Genesis chapter three, where do you see mercy here? We see it in a lot of places, especially verses eight and verse nine. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, called to the man and said to him, where are you? Don't miss this. 
They had been told that when they ate from the tree of the garden, they would die, but here they are still alive. There's grace, there's mercy. God is actually coming now to them. God is actually speaking to the rebels. You can write this down. God seeks after the guilty. That is the essence and the beauty and the power of the gospel. We see the mercy of God in the fact that he seeks out the guilty, those who have sinned against him, against his plan. God has not left them without his his presence. He is still coming to them. And God calls out to them. Isn't this great that, that, that God calls? Adam and Eve are fearful. They can run, but they cannot hide from the voice of God. I would submit to you today, they can't even hide from the mercy of God. The reason God calls out in this way is not because God needs information. He is not clueless to where they are, clearly not. But it's in order that God might express to them his justice, yes, but also his love. They are hiding on the account of their own disobedience, but God does not call out to them in an act of judgment. God does not call out to them in an act of judgment. He calls out to them in an act of grace and in an act of love. He calls out with grace and mercy. God exposes sin in order that he might cover sin. This is why God calls us out in our sin. This is why it's good that nothing is hidden from God. He reveals our sin in order that he might forgive our sin. He shines light on our sins so he can shine his grace on the sin. I mean, why is it that God came to Adam and Eve? This is good news because he still loved them even though they disobeyed him. And if that wasn't true, what hope would anybody in this room have? If God doesn't love the rebel, if God does not call us even in our sin, we would have no hope whatsoever. He not only seeks after the guilty, but also God covers the shameful. The, the, the guilt and the shame were the consequences of the fall. But look at verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. Remember, they've already realized their, their nakedness, which was an understanding of their shame, an understanding of their, of their guilt. Because of their guilt, they're now exposed before the Lord. But God takes garments of skin and covers Adam and Eve. He, he clothes them. And New Testament believer... There's only one option right here. God took the skin of an animal to clothe them. What that means is for the first time in this Genesis narrative, death has now entered into this story. The death of an innocent animal whose skin is taken to clothe the shame of Adam and Eve. Let me repeat that one more time for those in the back. God takes the death of the innocent to clothe the guilty. And that pattern now begins to occur over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The stage is now set for God who will take the death of his innocent son and he will use it to cover the shamefulness of our sin. God will make him who knew no sin to become sin that we might be clothed in the righteousness of God. Fourthly, but God, in his mercy, promised a savior 
would come. Here, here's where Christmas enters into the picture of Genesis chapter three. God in his mercy promised a savior would come. It takes us to the key passage of, of I think, maybe the entire Old Testament. Like our salvation is given birth, if you will, right here in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. The, the, the hinge toward the New Testament understanding of salvation begins right here in Genesis 3.15, where it says, I will put enmity. There's gonna be a conflict. In fact, the word in Hebrew for enmity is the word combat. There will be combat between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the devil, speaking to our enemy. Then between your offspring and her offspring. And notice now he goes to the singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is the he? That's the question. Who is the he? I mean, the, the hints are all right here. And here's the first hint of the one who's gonna deal with the liar. A hint of the one who's gonna deal with or combat the enemy of God as the enemy of God and that who is the enemy of God's people. So this is the one who's gonna come. This is the he. So the great conflict happening right here between the, the he of the offspring of, of, of Eve and, and the he who is the enemy, the great conflict is the underlying plot line of the entire Bible. It's the underlying plot line of all of human history. In fact, you can jump ahead in your Bible. You see it on the screen. You don't have to turn there. First John chapter three, verse eight. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, you may not have put that verse on your Christmas card, but you could, legitimately, because this is the straightforward reason that the Savior Jesus would come to finish the battle of Genesis chapter three. You see, the whole Bible is going somewhere, it's going toward the he. The whole Bible is going toward the he who will crush your head. We've got to get to the he. And the enemy's agenda is that you and I never get to the he. Therefore, David versus Goliath. Therefore, Babylonians versus Jerusalem. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar against Daniel. Hence, the design of King Herod to kill every male child under the age of two. He was seeking to destroy the he. The one that God has planned so that men and women banished from the garden may be brought back with forgiveness and grace and joy instead of living life in shame, having intimacy with God instead of alienation from God, beauty instead of ashes. And the promise to come to the garden, the promise is that the garden of Eden, which has been turned into a desert, eventually will be turned back into a garden. You say, preacher God, where's that found? And the book ends. Genesis and Revelation. In Genesis, the garden becomes a desert. In Revelation, the desert becomes a garden. And all that was perfect, and all that was right, and all that was delightful, and all that was beautiful is restored. A, a second Adam would come. The first Adam, he fails miserably in the garden. The second Adam, he triumphs in the Garden of Eden. And in the triumph on the cross, Jesus, according to Genesis chapter three now, crushes the head of the enemy. He is defeated so that the Savior can take now all who believe in him into the garden where there is no sin, no sorrow, no, no cancer, no politics, no bitterness, no shame. 
just fantastic beauty and unmatched perfection. We rebelled and we brought God's judgment. But God in his mercy promised that a savior would come. Would you stand with me please for us to pray together? Father, thank you for the beauty and the power of the gospel. In our own rebellion, we brought judgment upon ourselves because you're a perfect God, holy and just, perfect in all of your ways. No unholy thing can come before your sight, which puts all of us in a lot of trouble. Unless you would have expressed your mercy toward humanity, toward us. And in the expression of your mercy, you sent forth your treasure, your one and only, the perfect son of God, the lamb without blemish, tempted in every way, yet without sin. And this second Adam, this savior who would come, who would crush the head of the enemy, would offer us life that lasts forever in a new garden, a new heaven, a new earth, an everlasting kingdom, the future grace of the kingdom of God. Father, deal with our hearts because nothing is hidden from you. You've seen our sin, you've seen our rebellion, you have seen our self-sufficiencies. So deal with our hearts today. How we love you, how, how we need you. It's the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. In view of the mercy of God. As we approach this Christmas season, can we just stand for just a moment in view of the mercy of God? Where we deserved judgment, he gave us mercy. We, we deserved death, he gave us the opportunity for new life and life that would last forever. So today, maybe for, for some of you in view of mercy, you'd want to give your life to Christ. Uh, you may be in elementary school, maybe in middle school, maybe in high school, maybe you're a college student. To, today, in, in view of the mercy of God, in light of the mercy of God, would you give your life to Christ today and in doing so, step into the joy of new life. Step into the joy of your past being forgiven, all of your past being completely forgiven. Young adults, moms, dads, meeting adults, would you today, in, in view of the mercy of God, in light of his mercy, would you step into new life? and believe upon the Son, Jesus, who offers forgiveness and peace and joy, a covering for all of your past, a covering for all of our shame. Senior adults, the, the, the question is not, are you churched? The question is, are you in Christ? In light of his mercy, in view of his mercy, have you given your life, your past, your everything to him? 
in the first gathering this morning, an elementary school girl came to me and said, I am ready to have new life. I want Jesus. But that invitation is not only issued to elementary school aged people today. In view of the mercy of God, would you give your life to him? Or believers in Christ, brothers and sisters here today, maybe in view of God's mercy, you'd wanna come and just kneel and thank God for his mercy. Maybe you've been a recipient of unmeasurable amounts of mercy. Maybe today you're a trophy of the mercy of God. And you'd wanna come and just kneel before him and say, God, thank you for your mercy. I rebelled, I deserved judgment, and you gave me mercy at the cross, and I believed. I just wanna thank you on my knees and from my knees one more time. Let's sing, and won't you please come.